November is Southside's annual Praise-Giving Revival, a month-long emphasis on revival, prayer, and praise. Will you participate with us in praising God publicly this month by sharing a praise? One way you can do this is by visiting southsidebaptist.net slash praise. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 and 12 says this, And he, being God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Most weeks, you hear the voice of a shepherd, a pastor, a teacher, preaching and teaching God's word. But joining us today in Southside's pulpit is another voice and gift of God for his church, the voice of an evangelist. Southside is pleased to welcome evangelist Spencer Bell as he delivers a moving message entitled, The Greatest Decisions of Your Life. Please take a moment to visit Spencer's website, spencerbellministries.org, and pray about ways you can support Spencer's spiritual and material needs as he obeys God in vocational evangelism. Prepare your hearts now to hear the greatest decisions of your life. Welcome to the Southside Sermons Podcast. I am Christopher Campbell, pastor of Southside Baptist Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. This message you're about to hear is from God's Word and is offered to you with this prayer that God would give you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to obey His Word. May your faith be strengthened in Jesus and may you grow in your knowledge of Him. Amen. Amen. Boy, you can't beat good music, can you? Amen. Amen. Thank you, choir. What a good-looking choir this morning. Most of the churches I go to don't have choirs anymore. I'm thankful for you this morning, and thank you for that beautiful special. It's one of my favorite songs. Thank you so much, and I'm thankful that you're here. If you're glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning, say amen. If you love Jesus this morning, say amen. If you just want to say amen again, say amen. Amen. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm thankful to be here this morning. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. We're going to look at a few different scriptures this morning, but what I really want to focus on is this single passage in Joshua. Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. I'm thankful, Brother Christopher, for uh, your invitation for me to come preach here. I certainly love your pastor. He's a dear friend and encouragement to me. But I must say, I have a bone to pick with you this morning. You showed up to church with shinier shoes than I've got on, and that hurt my feelings. <laughs> oh, me. Well, I'll tell you what. I certainly love you, Pastor. Aren't you glad to have him as your pastor? Amen. 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 The title of my message this morning is The Greatest Decisions of Your Life. I want you to think with me for a moment. How many decisions do you make in your life? 
I read a study here a few years ago that uh, it was a psychology magazine. It was talking about making decisions. It said that the average human mind makes approximately 35,000 decisions a day. Now, I'm no mathematician, but if you start to do the math, that's 245,000 decisions a week, 980,000 decisions a month, 11,760,000 decisions a year, and if you live to at least 75 years of age, you're going to at least make 882 million decisions in your lifetime. You see, life is full of decisions. Now, this morning, I want you to think with me. You decided as you woke up this morning whether you were going to drink your morning coffee before or after you got out of the shower. And after you got out of the shower, you probably went to your closet and decided what color shirt or what color dress or blouse you were going to put on this morning. If you've got multiple automobiles, you decided what vehicle you were going to drive to church. You may be deciding right now in, in the earshot of my voice where you're going to be eating lunch, what you're going to be eating for lunch, how you might get there or who you might invite. This evening, you're going to decide what you watch on television. You're going to decide what time you go to bed. Some of you that still work, you're going to decide what time you're going to set your alarm for to get up in the morning. You see, life is full of decisions, and you and I make a whole lot more decisions than we actually think. We see an important decision here in this passage of Scripture in the book of Joshua about them needing to make a decision, and they're faced with two options, and they've got to choose as to what they're going to serve. I want you to stand with me real quick as we read the word of the Lord together in honor of God's word. Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, let's say it together, church, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how powerful it is, how it speaks to us in our time of need. It encourages us in our time of discouragement. Father, that wherever it's presented, it never returns void. And Father, I'm asking this morning that you would hide me behind the cross. Father, that this congregation here at Southside Baptist might only see you, that we might focus on your word, that we might build our life upon your word. And Father, I pray for a powerful morning this morning as we ask for your spirit to move among us and work in us. Father, it's in your heavenly and most gracious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Now, Joshua has brought the children of Israel to the borders of the promised land. Now, they're about to enter into the land, and he calls together all of the leaders of these people, and they have a meeting at Shechem, and Joshua issues a warning. He tells them that the land that they're about to go into is already occupied by the enemies. And these enemies that this land is occupied of, they worship and they serve false gods. And he says that this land that we're about to go into, they worship and serve false gods, and you're going to be tempted by these enemies to worship and serve the same false gods. 
So he calls upon them to make a decision. He says, you're going to have to choose for yourselves who you are going to serve. I can't make that decision for you, but he says, I can tell you for a fact that as for me and my household, we are going to serve the Lord. In our current society of the United States, we see all of these things on the television happening. We see that God is slowly being stamped out of society. We see that a lot of people are influenced by things that used to, they weren't influenced by. And it causes Christians like you and me today to make decisions as to who it is we are going to serve. That's why he says, choose you this day whom ye will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, I believe America's churches today have made Christianity so complicated. I believe that because we've made it so complicated, people are unable to understand the actual promises of God's word and the actual meaning of the cross of Calvary. And today I'm going to preach a simple little three-point sermon about decisions in your life. And there are some of you here today that have made these decisions. You're right with God and, and you're, you know that you're bound for glory that you've made these decisions. There's a few of you here today that think you've made these decisions and never truly have. And there's some of you here today that have never made these decisions in your life at all. I'm going to talk about the three greatest decisions out of the 882 million expected decisions you're going to make in your life. There are three which are going to transform your life. The first decision I want to call your attention to this morning is that the greatest decision you will ever make in your life is to be born again. Now, how many of you here today know that if you were to die right now, that you would go to heaven? I want you to think with me about that for a moment. If you were to die right now, if on this pew in Southside Baptist Church, you were to take your last breath, how many of you today know without a shadow of a doubt that you are going to heaven when you die? Do you have a no-so salvation? Do you know that you know that you know that you've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ? Most people in the churches of Christianity today don't know for certain that they're saved. When I try to witness to folks, I, I eat out a lot. I'm a single man and I, I go and I, I eat out a lot. I found that it's cheaper and it's easier for me to go to Cracker Barrel and pay $10 than it is to go to the grocery store, pay $20, spend two hours cooking it, and throw it in the trash because it's not fit to feed the dog. So I've decided that Cracker Barrel is my joint. I like to go to Cracker Barrel. All the waitresses know me by name, but I've built relationships with them off of simply sharing the gospel with them. And I always ask them, do you go to church anywhere? A lot of them tell me, well, yes, I do. I go to such and such church or no, I don't go to church at all. And really the question I'm getting to is not so much where you're going to church, is that are you saved? And I begin to share the gospel with them and, and how Christ came and he, he's willing to save them if they'll only accept him. And I start to share the gospel and some are receptive and some reject it. But there are a lot of people in our realms that have never made the decisions that we are called to make. I hear things such as, well, preacher, I sure do think I'm going to heaven. I think I'm going to make it. Well, preacher, I sure hope I'm going to heaven. I sure hope I'm going to see Jesus. I sure hope I'm saved. Well, preacher, I sure am working on that. You know, I'm working on, on, on getting saved, and I'm, I'm just working on that. Friend, let me tell you something. 
think so, hope so, and I sure am working on it, and it's possible or a good indication that these kind of people don't have salvation. And you may say today that, well, I think I'm going to heaven. I hope I'm going to heaven. I sure am working on it. Friend, you can know because of what the Bible tells us that we can know that we are saved. The greatest decision of your life is to be born again because the Savior of the world cannot step into your heart and step into your life and you not know that you are saved. There was a very religious man one time. I'm sure you've heard of him. I'm sure your pastor has preached about him. His name was Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was one of the most well-respected Jewish leaders of his time. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was the high court of justice and was the supreme council in ancient Jerusalem. He was well-respected, he was well-read, and he was a high leader and a, in a position of authority among a lot of Jewish people. Now, if you think about Nicodemus, it is known that Nicodemus has studied very closely the first five books of the Bible. Now, we call that the Pentateuch. The Jews call that the Torah. We call it just the first five books. He had memorized the first five books. In fact, if, if Nicodemus were here today, he could stand in this pulpit and recite to you from memory on the spot the first five books of the Bible. Now, I'm sure there's some very wise individuals here this morning, but I don't know, your pastor may be able to, but I can't recite the first five books of the Bible. I could probably recite the first four lines, and that's about as far as I would get. I can't recite that for you, but Nicodemus could. That's because Nicodemus was intelligent, he was very religious, and he was deemed as perfect in the eyes of the Jewish people. He had studied this law, he had upheld the law, he had proclaimed the law, but I want you to take your Bibles there and let's look a little bit about Nicodemus. John chapter 3 is where we're going to be. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I like to turn in the Bible because we can see it for ourselves. And now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a man. He had fasted several times a week. He tithed all of his possessions through the temple. Nicodemus was about as religious as you could get. He was known as being, I guess what you could say, a pretty good church member. In fact, I think Nicodemus probably would have made a pretty good Southern Baptist. He did everything right that he was supposed to. Perfect attendance. He was there in Sunday school every Sunday. He gave all of his tithes. He gave his offerings. He made those donations. He encouraged the saints of God. He did everything that a good church member is supposed to do. But here comes Jesus, and Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You see what the problem with Nicodemus was? He was perfect in the eyes of society. He was perfect in his own social realms, the people that loved him, the people that knew him. Perfect in the eyes of society. But friend, let me tell you, he was also far from God. Even though he was an upstanding member in the church, Nicodemus was just like that lost sinner that the church is trying to reach. I believe Nicodemus is a representation of what a lot of our churches hold today. A lot of people saying, well, we're gonna do everything right. I'm a good person. I go to church. I give my money, but that doesn't make you saved. Nicodemus 
He asks a question. He says, well, Jesus, if you look at verse four there, he says, Jesus, how can a man be born again when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? You know, I, like, I love the Bible because it has a lot of people that ask the questions that we would be asking if they weren't inserted in the Bible. Kind of like Thomas and, and the rest of them but, and Moses and, and Jonah. But here's Nicodemus. He says, well, I can't be born again. Now, I'm no scientist, but if you think for a moment, it'd probably be hard if you're over 65 years of age to be born again, amen? That'd be a difficult task. Jesus is not talking about a physical birthday. A lot of people, when they read that thing, well, Jesus want me to be born again. I can't do that. He's not talking about a physical birthday. In fact, if you look at the translation from the Greek, I'm no Greek scholar, but if you look at the translation of the Greek, the word is, the word is regeneration. It means to literally be born of God. Now, for a country boy from Hartsville, Alabama, I can get that. I need to be born of God, but it still doesn't make sense because Jesus isn't talking about a physical birthday. What's Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about having a spiritual birthday. He's talking about being born of God in a spiritual way. Now, each of you here today, and I'm sure the choir does too, y'all have a physical birthday, don't you? Every year you have a fiscal birthday, and when it rolls around, you know that somebody's going to send you a card or a letter or give you a kind word. They're going to say, happy birthday. I'm on this thing called Facebook. It's the way I communicate with a lot of people, and it gives me notifications every morning about whose birthday it is. I thank the Lord for that because I can't remember anybody's birthday. But it, it tells you when their birthday is. We all have a physical birthday. My birthday is March 16th. I was born on March 16th, so I know that I'm going to get cards, letters, and encouraging words. I, I love when my birthday rolls around because all those people that never speak to you any other time of the year, they'll speak to you on your birthday. I love that. Physical birthday. Now, I can't tell you what happened on my physical birthday. Now, judging by the pictures in our photo album at the time of my birth, my mother was, looked like she was wincing in pain. I guess it wasn't a very joyful occasion. But Jesus isn't talking about a physical birthday. He's talking about a spiritual birthday. I can't tell you what happened the day I was born. I can't tell you the events that took place in Decatur Hospital. I can't tell you the events of what my parents did when they came home and I probably cried and cried and cried and like Brother Christopher here, probably up for about two weeks with no sleep. If you fall asleep today, you've got a good excuse, by the way. I can't tell you what happened on my physical birthday, but I can tell you what happened on my spiritual birthday. I can tell you that I was a sinner and that I needed a savior. I can tell you I was redeemed, I was sanctified. My name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I was a new creature in Christ Jesus. And when as a young man I came down the aisle at Hartsville Camp Meeting and knelt on that sawdust altar, I can tell you that I left that altar changed. I can tell you what happened on my spiritual birthday. I can't tell you what happened on my physical birthday because your spiritual birthday is just as definite as your physical birthday. We won't set our minds on the things according to the flesh, on what we wanted, on what we had to have, on the things we thought the way things should go ought to work in our favor. Friend, when you're saved, that's not how it works. You once lived for yourself, but now you're living for God. You're setting your mind on the things that God wants for your life, the plans and the purposes that he's designated for your life. And I can tell you, friend, that if you're still sitting here today, God isn't done with you yet. All of you have a purpose. I'm thankful for this beautiful choir. Their purpose is to sing and bless our hearts and sing praises unto God. I'm thankful for choirs. I'm thankful for Pastor Christopher. His job, his calling is to preach the word of God. You have a calling and you have a job that God has entrusted you with and he is not done with you yet. 
Because when you're saved, you're set aside for the work of the Lord. Well, preacher, why do I need to be born again? That's one of the most common questions that I receive as an evangelist. Why do I need to be born again? Well, you need to be born again first because you're a sinner. You're first a sinner by nature. The Bible says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. That means none of us are good enough on our own to go to heaven. That's what that passage of Scripture means. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're sinners by nature. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. If you think with me for a moment about Adam and Eve, I'm sure you've heard about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, the first two chapters of Genesis were absolutely paradise. They were wonderful. If I could go back and live in the first two chapters of Genesis, I'd probably sign up and take a tree up. I wish I could live in the first two chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, man didn't make it to chapter 3 before we messed something up. Messed it all up. Messed up God's perfect paradise. We got involved and messed it up. What happened is the pattern of sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. God said, okay, I'm going to give you paradise. You can eat anything you want from any of these trees, but please don't touch that tree and don't eat that fruit. Well, what did we do? We went and got the fruit, didn't we? That's how humans work. If somebody tells us we can't do something, we're just going to do it to prove them wrong. Well, that's exactly what happened. And they ate that fruit. And just as the Bible says, just as through one man sin entered the world, so all have sinned. Sinners by nature. For three years, I worked for Peck Funeral Home. It gave me a lot of wonderful opportunities to be able to minister to families and, and see a lot of things that you just wouldn't normally see uh, in any other kind of job. And I'm thankful for the opportunity that I had to work for the funeral home. But it never failed that at least once a week we would handle the service of someone that was uh, not necessarily thought of too well in society. And I had a lot of friends. I tell folks I have a lot of friends in low places. I believe that's true. And unfortunately, this person that we were burying at the time was someone that not too many people came to his funeral and those that came to his funeral didn't have anything kind to say to him. And we buried him and his family came in and they, and they wept over the casket and they, and they said, well, I know that you're dancing with those angels. Now, I tell you, I'm no, I'm no perfect person, I'm no perfect judge, but if you're drinking and hitting people and beating people up and your lifestyle is of crime, I don't see how you can be saved and live that kind of lifestyle. And they, they came to the casket and they wept and they said, well, we know you're dancing with those angels and they left and we buried them and that was the end of that. His legacy was a life of crime. His legacy was that he completely lived a life in sin against the will of God. And at the point of his death, people thought that he was in heaven. I think a lot of us today would be surprised as to who makes it to heaven and who doesn't. And I believe when we get to heaven, we're going to see people that we didn't think were going to make it and we saw people that made it that we really think, man, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't have had my money on him. Heaven is not about our works. It's nothing about what we do, but we're all sinners. I don't care if you're in here this morning, you have over a million dollars in your savings account, that you've lived a perfect life, that you grew up in church all your life, and you seem to be perfect in the eyes of society and well thought of in the city of Decatur. You can still be as lost as any other sinner without Christ. You could be here today and you might be the greatest heathen that ever lived. And you wear that suit 
coat and you, and you just come to church and you can put on a good face. I know a lot of those people. You still can be lost. It's nothing about what you do. It's all about what you receive. And you receive God's grace. God's grace is very simple. Five little points I want to tell you about God's grace. I promise I won't spend 20 minutes on each. God's grace first is a gift. It's a gift from God. It means that we can't do anything to earn it. We don't do anything to deserve it. We can't endure anything long enough to get it. It's only a gift from God. And secondly, it's received by faith. It's a gift from God. It's received by faith. Faith tell, the Bible tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the certainty of things unseen. And if that is the case, that it's the certainty of things hoped for, the, hope, the assurance of things unseen, if that's what the Bible tells us that faith is, we've got to somehow trust in God, even though we might not visibly see God, we've got to trust He's there and trust in the promises of his word is received by faith. When we come before God, when we say, I'm a sinner, I need a savior, and I want to accept the gift of grace. It's received by faith. Thirdly, it's available to everyone. This is the thing that a lot of Christians don't like to tell. Grace is available to everyone. Grace is not exclusive. Grace is not something that a few people have the opportunity and no one ever has an opportunity. Let me tell you what, if you're here today, it's only by God's grace. If you're here today, you have the opportunity to receive that grace. And God has gifted you another opportunity to say, I want to live my life for Jesus Christ. It's available to everyone. Therefore, our churches, us as Christians need to be telling others, let me tell you about God's grace. Let me tell you about what he's done in my life. And let me tell you how you can receive that grace. Grace is available to everyone. Fourthly, grace is centered in the cross. If it weren't for the cross of Calvary, we wouldn't be able to be saved. If you ever thought for a moment about your status of sin, I said we're sinners by nature. If we weren't sinners by nature and if we weren't sinners by practice, Christ would have died in vain. If nobody had sinned on the face of the earth and everybody said, well, I'm perfect, I don't need Christ, and Christ would have died in vain. But Christ died for you because you're a sinner and you needed salvation and he provided redemption through the cross of Calvary. Grace is centered in the cross. It's all about the cross. Finally, grace extends throughout eternity. That means that grace throughout your life, your salvation, when you die, it will carry you into glory. It'll carry you to heaven because you made that decision in your life. We're sinners by nature. But secondly, we're sinners by practice. Romans 3.23, as I tell, told you, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means the Pope has sinned, the President has sinned, I've sinned, your pastor's sinned, you've sinned, your grandchildren have sinned. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all, and the wages of that sin, what we earn from sin, the Bible tells us, is death. That's what you get for sin, you die. The wages of sin is death. But what's the good news about that? Preacher, you've told me all of the bad news, but what in the world is the good news about sin? Well, there's no good news about sin, but I can tell you one thing, that God loves you. That's the good news. If God didn't love you, he wouldn't have sent Christ to die for you. If God didn't love you, he wouldn't have allowed you to read his promises and his word. If God didn't love you, he wouldn't have given you the opportunity to come here to Southside Baptist Church today and hear the word of God and have the opportunity to make a decision. If God didn't love you, you wouldn't be able to be saved. 
but God loves you and he sent his son to die for you on the cross of Calvary for anyone who is willing to accept the promises of what God gives to you because eternal life is a gift. Christ loves you. I, was, I love football. I love American football. I've always been a fan of football, but especially the past about four years, I've really gotten involved with it. And sometimes you get a little too involved with it to where it, it becomes too, too preeminent in your life. You have to uh, moderate yourself. But I love American football. A few weeks ago, I was at the Hartzell football game, and one of the young men in my church was playing on the ball team, and I felt an obligation to, to go. It also gave me an excuse to go watch football, so don't feel sorry for me. But I love to watch our Hartzell Tigers play, and I was sitting in the stands with several friends of mine, and we were watching the ball game, and all of a sudden, this young man received the ball from 60 yards away from the end zone, intercepted the ball, runs it to the end zone, and it's touchdown Hartzell. For the lack of better terms, that was just one of the most majestic plays I've ever seen in high school football in a long time. Until there was a flag on the play. And I looked at that little yellow flag that that referee had drawn. And I thought, we sunk now. Perfect play. We did everything right. We did the right motions. It was perfect in the eyes of the stands. But it wasn't perfect to the person calling the game. A lot of us can live a perfect life. We come to church, do as we feel we're supposed to do. We bear more tradition over actually what God tells us to do because we've always done it that way. And then what happens is you and I live a life deceived into thinking that we're saved because of what we do. There's a lot of people that I meet daily who can tell me about all the wonderful things they do and can't tell me how they're saved. Salvation's not by works. You can live a perfect life in society, but a lot of us are running through life. We're all going to the end zone. I can tell you all of us are going to the end zone. The end zone's death. What the call is once you get to the end zone is based on the official that is calling your life, and that official is God Almighty. And when you stand before God and it's either heaven or hell, you're going to have to speak. A lot of us are living life and we've got that flag on that play. We're breezing through life perfectly, majestically, as if everybody thinks well of us. But a lot of us have the flag on that play. That's why he gives us the opportunity to be born again. That's why the, one of the greatest decisions of your life, the most important decision of your life is to be born again. There's a second thing I want to talk with you about. I promise I won't spend as much time on the final two points as I did the first. The second most important decision of your life is to be scripturally baptized as a believer. If you take your Bibles there, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. And now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Well, that sounds like a lot of us. We, we always ask, what are we going to do. We'll find out that it's not anything we do, it's all that what God does. 
Peter said to them, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. I'll tell you what, I don't know about you, but I would have liked to be in that revival meeting there. 3,000 souls added unto the kingdom of God. What a revival meeting that must be. Now, it says in that passage of Scripture, it says, be baptized for. That doesn't mean that baptism means that you're saved because you're baptized. That word for, if you actually translate it, means because, that you're baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins. Now, there's one person that I find in the Bible through my reading, and I'm sure Pastor Christopher will probably be able to back me up on this. There's one person in the Bible who was not baptized but was saved, and that was a thief on the cross. If you, if you remember the dialogue of what happened and the events that happened on that day of the cross, this man, had, there was one man hurling insults at him. There was one man who saw the compassion that Jesus had and received the Lord of life. And he said, Jesus, remember me when do you enter into your father's kingdom. And the words that Jesus said to that man was, today you shall be with me in paradise. I've had people ask me, well, was he, did he go to heaven? I said, well, of course he did. They say, well, why? Because Jesus told him he would. The Bible tells us that Jesus cannot lie. The Bible, te well, the Bible tells us God cannot lie, and if Jesus is the Son of God, God manifesting himself in human form, then that means Jesus can't lie. And if Jesus tells you you're going to heaven, I think that's the greatest assurance any of us could ever ask for. But he says, and he commands us to be scripturally Baptized. And if you're born again today, you've got to be scripturally baptized. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And if his command is to be baptized, that means you and I need to be baptized. But you have to do it first in the right method. What's the right way to be baptized? The Bible tells us that the right way to be baptized is by immersion. That means to be put under the water. It represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The word baptismo never means to sprinkle. It never means to pour. It always means to immerse under the water. It has to be done in the right method, but secondly, the right moment. It's got to be at the right time in your life, which is always after salvation. There are some of you here today that you were baptized. You thought you made a decision. You were baptized, and then you actually started living a life for Christ, and you actually were saved, but you never were baptized. There's a lot of people who have their baptism on the wrong side of their salvation. I heard of a man one time. He was an older man. He had been married for several years, and he had his wedding ring on the wrong hand. A gentleman at church went up to him one time and said, uh, Sir, I wanted to ask you, why is your wedding ring on the wrong hand? He said, Well, I married the wrong woman. <laughs> I think a lot of us today have the wedding ring of salvation on the wrong hand. We have, we have the baptism on the wrong side of our salvation. How many of you here today are married? I want you to raise your hand. How many of you are married today? Got several in the choir, several here. A lot of you are married this morning. I want you to look on your hand. Most of you here today probably have a wedding ring, don't you? 
Now, when you stood before the preacher and you stood before God and you stood before all your friends and families that were in attendance at your wedding and they placed that ring upon your finger and you said, till death do us part, did that wedding ring make you married? No, it didn't. I can go down here to K Jewelers and spend 10 grand on a wedding ring, but that don't make me married. I can, I can do all the things. I can act like I'm married, but that doesn't make me married. You see, that wedding ring is only a symbol of your marriage, your commitment, saying I'm committed in a relationship with this person until I die or they die. It is till death do us part. And I've made that covenant with God and I've made that covenant with my friends and family and I've made that covenant with the church. Baptism is like a wedding ring. When you were saved, you were baptized and that wedding ring of salvation was put upon your finger. And you made that covenant with God and you made that covenant with everyone present saying, I'm gonna follow Christ in baptism that because of my profession of Jesus Christ, I am going to follow him with everything that I have. Now, there are some of you here today, because you have the baptism on the wrong side of your salvation, you, you're thinking, well, what are people gonna think of me if I walk that aisle and say I need to be baptized and I've been serving the Lord 60 years? Well, I can tell you, I was scripturally baptized when I was in ministry. I was so convicted that I wasn't scripturally baptized. I grew up in the United Methodist Church, became a Southern Baptist, and I felt so convicted that I was not baptized on the right side of my salvation that I had to go to a few of my preacher friends and I said, I need to be baptized on the right side of my salvation. Nobody's gonna think of you any differently if you're baptized on the right side of your salvation. What a testimony that is to God's grace that you can stand before your congregation and say, I need to be baptized. But there's some of you here today who are thinking, well, I've never been baptized and I don't need to be baptized. Yes, you do. God's given you the opportunity today to be baptized and if you're saying I don't need to be baptized and I'd put a question mark beside your salvation because if you're not willing to be baptized, you aren't willing to follow God to the fullest extent to take up your cross and say, I'm gonna follow you wherever you lead me to go. To be born again is the most significant decision you'll ever make in your life. But secondly, it's to be baptized as a believer. There's a third thing I want to talk with you about this morning. The third most important decision of your life is to be a faithful and active member of a local church. Turn in your Bibles one last time. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 through 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 through 25. The Bible says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling of ourselves together as some in the, are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If we're being honest, I'd say that a lot of us, you know, we got a lot of folks listening online and a lot of folks here today, COVID-19 caused a lot of us to not do as much as we once used to. For an evangelist like myself, COVID-19 shut down my schedule. Wasn't allowed to preach anywhere. There was nowhere to go. And if, if you know much about evangelism, evangelists depend on offerings and the generosity of other people to continue in this ministry. Well, when they shut down your life support, it caused you to question, Lord, what are we going to do? If you lost your job during COVID, you probably thought, what are we going to do? It caused a lot of people to say, what are we going to do? But it secondly, caused a lot of people to stay away from the church. I'd go see people all the time from my home church. 
I'd go to Walmart. You see everything in Walmart. If you ever go to Walmart, you can see just about anything you want to, and it'll be at Walmart. Amen? Well, every time I go to Walmart, I see somebody I know. And most of the people during COVID that I was seeing were people that were scared to death to come to church, but they weren't scared to go shopping. And I told them, I said, you know, we sure are missing you in church. And they said, yeah, I know. I'm just just being very careful about, about where I go. And I thought to myself, well, there's more people in Walmart than there are at this church. I can tell you that. I look at the membership rolls. A lot of people find excuses to not come to church. Now, I'm not saying if you're listening from home and, and, you, and you feel that, that you, know, you need to stay home because of safety reasons and health reasons, I fully understand that. But I'm talking about people in their 40s who are in perfect health saying, oh, I just don't want to go. They go to work, they go to Walmart, they won't go to church. And what we've done in America is our churches have started to close because more and more people don't see the relevance of church today. You know what church's main concern is? It's about being relevant. I talk with pastors weekly. They're concerned about the relevance of their church, how they're going to keep their church relevant in a changing society. I'll tell you how to keep it relevant is to stand on the Word of God. A church doesn't close because it's not doing contemporary worship. A church doesn't close because it's got the wrong seating style arrangement or the wrong amount of people. A church doesn't close because they don't have enough ministries. A church closes because they bend the authority of the scriptures and they start to to unhinge themselves from the word of God and they say, I really don't need the church and I don't need God in my life telling me how I need to do things. Now, a lot of us are not going to say, well, God, you don't need to tell me what to do, but a lot of us certainly do act that way in our practices. And the reason we do that is because we don't want to reach people. We don't want to share the gospel with others. We don't really want to read our Bible. And slowly but surely, we've allowed the church to lose its influence in society because we've lost the biblical influence in our life from God himself as he speaks through his word. And you and I must make it very clear to ourselves and to our family and to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. I know some of you probably got great-grandchildren here today. And we've got to make it very clear that the church is just as relevant as it was many years ago because of God's unchanging word. And it's our responsibility that we share that word with anybody and everybody that the Lord brings into our path. It's the greatest responsibility because being part of a church is so important because serving in the church is your part of worship. Saying, I love God, I'm thankful for the promises he's, he's manifested in my life, so I want to serve him wholeheartedly in this church. Being faithful and active in the local church. They've come out with this new uh, form of Christianity recently. It's called CEO Christianity. I thought I might try it sometime. Christmas and Easter only. New form of Christianity. It's the most popular form of Christianity. I see people all the time, we sure have missed you at church. Well, I'll be there at Christmas. Well, Christmas is six months away. Oh, well, I'll be there. I'm there. And they're there with their whole family, and they've got their little vests, those kids and this little vests on, and, and they take their Christmas pictures in front of the cross and their Easter pictures in front of the cross outside, and that's it. Let me tell you what, that's not church membership. You can't glorify God by showing up to church two times a year. Church membership is when we're dedicated to the church, not about our desires, not about what we want, not about what we hope to see, It's all about what God asks us to do. Saying, God, I'll do what it takes. It may not be what I want. It may not be what I desire. It may not be where I see our church going. But I'm willing to say, Lord, I'll yield myself to your control. And I ask that you use me wherever you place me in your church for your service. There are three decisions. I want to recap them. The most important decision in your life is to be born again. 
And I want to ask you today, have you been born again? I don't want this think so, hope so, I sure am working on it. Have you been born again? I'll help you with that. It's either yes, I have, or no, I haven't. Friend, you can make that right this morning. Secondly, have you been baptized on the right side of your salvation? Have you been baptized at all? Yes, I have, or no, I haven't. And thirdly, you may be here today and you, you haven't been as committed to the church as you feel like you should be. Maybe you haven't joined this church and you're just, you've just become a professional attender and you want to join in fellowship with this church. I'm going to encourage you to do that today. I'm going to extend an invitation here in a few minutes and I'm going to invite you to make these decisions. Nobody's going to think anything different of you. Nobody's going to say, well, what are people going to say that's going to tarnish my reputation. No, it won't, because the only reputation that matters in your life is a reputation you have with God. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to make those decisions. Three decisions to be born again, to be scripturally baptized as a believer, and to be faithful and active in the local church. You and I have decisions to make. As Joshua said, choose you this day whom ye will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. My question to you this morning is, are you willing to serve the Lord and do what he commands you to do? Thank you for listening to this message. Remember that November is Southside's annual Praise Giving Revival Month. Please make plans to join us and hear powerful messages from God's Word like the one you have just heard. Southside Baptist Church is located at 709 9th Street Southeast in Decatur, Alabama and online at southsidebaptist.net. We gather for worship every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. in the sanctuary. So come join us and enter under the steeple.